Good morning. Good morning. Well, the crowd's just thinning out just a little bit, and uh, that means it's getting close to time I can pull out my good poem. <laughs> but uh, not yet. Not till tonight. One of my favorite, uh, uh, some of you, uh, more than one, have asked uh, about what kind of music I like to listen to and what are some good uh, Western uh, musicians, and uh, I'd like to share a couple of them. Now, in Idaho, there's still a difference between country and Western. Now, it's two different categories, and I like to listen to Western music, and so uh, the two, I suppose, that I listen to the most, one is a group called the Sons of the San Joaquin, and they happen to be three fellows that are good friends of mine and uh, happen to be good uh, Christian men. But the music that they sing is a lot like the Sons of the Pioneers that you heard in the 30s and the 40s and early 50s. And they're called Sons of the San Joaquin, and they have so, several albums out with Warner Western Records. But uh, one of my favorite, the other would be a Canadian by the name of Ian Tyson out of Alberta, yeah, out of Okotoks probably, I think, around Calgary. and. Um, He's been singing songs for a long time, and those of us in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming and all through the West have been listening to him. And uh, there's a particular song that he wrote, and the words, of course, are a poem, and uh, you might understand why I kind of relate to this particular one. It's called The Old Cowboy. This is the girl with everything, everyone waiting at her beck and call. Well-read and well-bred and lovely as sunrise, this is the girl with it all. What does she see? What does she see in that old cowboy? He's no longer young. The battle he's won, they're all in the past. She could have so much more, yet they walk through the door and her eyes never leave him. It's plain to see, for everyone to see, she's happy at last. He takes her walking through fields of blue bonnets. He takes her dancing down in Mexican town. She cries for him when he's off in Montana and leaves all of the others just hanging around. What does she see? What does she see in that old cowboy? He's no longer young. The battles he's won, they're all in the past. She could have so much more, yet they walk through the door and her eyes never leave him. It's plain to see. For everyone to see, she's happy at last. I never knew what she saw <laughs> in the old cowboy. Here's your trail tip for today. Never shoot a man who doesn't need shooting. <laughs> okay. You know, there's several things I've, uh, well, many of you have asked. Actually, only one is asked about my boots, but uh, I've had several of the people come up and want to know if they could pet my boots, and uh, <laughs> I won't mention any names, Karen, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> my boots, these boots happen to be uh, python belly boots, but that's what the box said. I never turned one of those suckers over and looked, so I don't know, but uh, uh, that's what these particular boots are. Um, Wanted to share a couple of more uh, books that are over there and what they're about. There's a little series of books, uh, five different books that are over there um, with the name Crystal as the first uh, of the title. This one I picked up is number three, Crystal's Rodeo Debut, but there's five different ones. Crystal's a 14-year-old girl uh, who moves from Southern California to Winchester, Idaho, 
And a very interesting uh, tri-level house that she moves into on Camas Street. If you want to know what our house looks like, uh, Crystal happens to live in it. Crystal's the daughter that we never had, so we invented one and wrote about her for five or six books. <laughs> she's attractive and she's wise and she's witty and uh, she uh, likes, her, uh, loves her dad and, you know, just the kind of daughter I know I would have had. And, <laughs> but these are for the, Jan, what do you say, 10 through 14-year-old girls? Uh, primarily, the boys like them too. The girls really love them, about a girl and her first horse, and uh, that's a Crystal series. Two other books that are over there are what are called Making Choices books. Um, they're books for the uh, 8 through 12-year-olds, and they're, they have uh, 32 different endings in these books, 60 different choices, and the reader decides where the story goes. You get the bottom of the page, it says, if you want to do this, go to page 12. If you want to do this, go to page 20. And so, depending on what the reader decides, depends on how that story ends up. So the kids can read them and reread them and reread them, making different choices. The one I wrote is called The President Stuck in the Mud. And the one Janet wrote is called The Hawaiian Computer Mystery. Now, I need to say about Janet's book, it's, a, it's kind of a startling thing when I look back on it because... She wrote this one and she titled it The Hawaiian Computer Mystery. She had never been to Hawaii and she didn't have a computer. <laughs> but she wanted a computer and she wanted to go to Hawaii. And so she wrote the book. And now she has a computer and she's been to Hawaii. The thing that's frightening about that is her new series called Great Shopping Trips in Europe. <laughs> This morning, uh, one of the things that some, some of you have shared with me, and I, I greatly appreciate it, and as you've been very kind and gracious this week, and one of the things that you say to me sometimes is that uh, you appreciate the fact that, that I try to make things practical, and I'm glad that you pick up on that, because I really do try to make things practical. I think part of that is my ranch heritage that says everything in life ought to be practical. But I think also some of it I'm beginning to understand maybe is uh, my Puritan heritage, and I suppose we don't think of Puritans that way, but in my, my devotional reading this morning, I'm reading through a book called A Quest for Godliness, The Puritan Vision of the Christian Life by J.I. Packer, and he was talking about Richard Baxter, uh, Puritan in the, around the time of 1650, and uh, what his standards were for how sermons ought to be. Now, I don't know what you think of a as English Puritans in England during the uh, 1600s. But this is what Baxter talks about when he talks about sermons and um, uh, writing and communicating God's Word. Uh, God's revealed truth, that he maintained, is for health-giving practice. Therefore, it is best studied in a practical way. Therefore, pastors must preach and teach in that way. Gospel doctrine is to be obeyed. Truth is to be not just acknowledged, but done in the sense of doing what it requires. So the most biblical theologian will be the most practical theologian, and vice versa. And the preaching style, with practical applications and challenges at every turn, will be the most biblical manner of theolo theologizing. Truth obeyed, said the Puritans, will heal. Truth obeyed will heal. The word fits because we are all spiritually sick, sick through sin, which is wasting and killing a wasting and killing disease of the heart. He goes on to talk about the Puritan's method of preaching and teaching and applying things practically. And uh, I hope I can do some of that this week. And I want to continue to be that way. This morning I want you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 15. 
And I want to look at those first 10 verses. As you're turning to that, I, uh, for those that might have come later in the week, I'll kind of fill you in. Uh, uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, I went back to the room and thought I'd take a little nap and get rested up for Sunday evening. And I ended up spending most of Sunday afternoon writing a sermon. Uh, and I wasn't sure why I hadn't planned on doing that, but I guess that's, you know, what preachers do when they have free time. They just write a new sermon, but uh, a particular idea was pressing on me, and I wanted to uh, flesh that out, and so I've kind of been thinking about it, working on it all week, and I shared with you later that I would like to uh, bring some of those ideas to you this morning. So uh, I hadn't planned on this. This is a kind of a change in schedule, but we're going to look at it anyway. Luke chapter 15, the first 10 verses. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Father in heaven, I do pray that you'll guide us into your word and help us to understand um, this message and why it is that you want us to hear this message this morning. Help us to apply it in a practical way. For I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's Thursday morning, and I think it's time that I talk about my grandson. I've pretty much waited all week, and, and I haven't said too much, but uh, i got to tell you about Zachary Nathaniel Bly. Uh, little Zach. And uh, Zach is now three, uh, three and a half, I guess, uh, getting close to that, isn't he, Grandma? And uh, he, uh, for the first three years or three and a half years, lived next door to us. And so we got to be around Zach a lot. And I want to tell you that Zach is a sports nut. And he has been a sports nut since, oh, for years now. And uh, <laughs> I, I have raised sons, and I, I realized uh, that this kid loves sports. Um, he's a left-handed little guy and uh, just a strong kid. And at a very early age, he learned how to throw the ball. Now, that's what all little kids do, I suppose. But Zachary doesn't just throw the ball. He fires it across the room. I mean, he fires it through the lampshade. He fires it through the window. He fires it into the television, into the stereo. The kid is strong. He does not throw soft. He never threw soft. Uh, our greatest thing is to find softer balls for him to throw because... When he picks it up, he fires it across. He loves throwing a ball. And every time you go to see him, he wants to play catch, wants to play catch, wants to play catch. Well, uh, not only that, but last summer when he was two and a half, uh, his mother got him a little t-ball stand. And we had to cut it down because at age two and a half, most t-ball stands are for, you know, three, four, five, 
six-year-olds or something, and it was a little too tall for him, so we had to cut this tee ball stand down to Zachary's height, but he gets out there left-handed, he grabs that ball, that bat the way it's supposed to be grabbed, and he smacks the ball. Now, he doesn't just hit the ball, he creams it. He loves playing ball, and he will stand out there. That's one of the few things that he will do for time on end. It's just hit the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball. But that got pretty boring, and before he was three, he wants the ball pitched to him. He didn't want to hit it off a tee. He wants you to throw it to him, and then he screams the ball. As Jan and I can attest with the bruises that we get on our leg, uh, we might only be four foot away, but he's hitting home run out of the park every time. He loves sports. Last Christmas, he... Uh, his, his folks, Russ and Lois, got him a basketball stand, one of those plastic little tight things. And, and uh, of course, in the, in the snow uh, of uh, Idaho, uh, it was indoors for a, a number of months last winter. But I remember he ha hadn't turned three yet. And I went over to his house and I said, Zachary, what should we do? He said, Grandpa, I'm going to slam dunk just like Michael Jordan. <laughs> I'm, Look at this kid. He's this big. I think, what do you know about Michael Jordan? Uh, he loves to shoot baskets and baskets and baskets. He's a sports nut. But it shouldn't surprise us at all. His father is a sports nut. And he is just like his father. I mean, I truly believe one of the reasons my son Russell moved from Winchester is that he can only play in one softball league a year in Winchester, but in California he can get in three leagues. And that was motivation enough for him to move. Russell loves sports. When I go home this next weekend, and we haven't talked to Russ and Lois for a week, 10 days, or something like that now, and so we'll call him up, we'll talk to him. I can tell you what we're going to talk about. When I get Russell on the phone, he's not going to tell me what the kids are doing. He's not going to tell me what's happening at work. He's not going to tell me about the church. He's not going to tell me about the new house they have. He's going to go through all the statistics that I missed this week at Cannon Beach, and he'll tell me, uh, what all everybody did and all the teams and how they're doing and we'll review baseball and basketball and, and uh, the prospects for the hockey season and uh, the football uh, lineup and the college and the pros. We'll do it all. You see, Zach is just like his father. Now, you and I are supposed to be just like our father, our father in heaven. And what we want to do as we discover scriptures and as we discover God's truth, we need to find out how can we be just like our Heavenly Father. We want to have those same family characteristics that He has. We want people to look at us and call us Christians, which means little Christs, because we are running around trying to be just like our Father. So with that in mind, I want us to take a look at what God has to say about the lost. Because I want us to develop an attitude like the Father so that we will be just like Him when it comes to talking about and acting and uh, behaving towards those that are lost. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you ten things to remember about the lost. Ten biblical things we need to remember about the lost. And it's going to be a little exercise in... Uh, in uh, going through some scriptures here and uh, keeping your fingers moving. It'll keep my fingers moving too because, uh, you know, of, of the many things that they don't have out there in Beachfront is they don't have computers in all the rooms. And I, I couldn't use my word processor, but I scribbled these notes on the back of a brown envelope almost. So 
we'll be looking at some scriptures. I'm going to talk about 10 things to remember about the loss. And the reason I tell you ahead of time there are 10 things, because some of you take notes and you'll want to space those out on your note paper. The others that don't take notes, you will know how close I am to getting done. Here's the first thing to remember about the lost. It is their nature to hide from God because they were born in the bushes. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, that's Adam and Eve, of course, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When sin had entered the world, Adam and Eve hid in the trees. They got lost in the forest. They were hiding behind the bushes. And from that moment on, mankind has been born out there in the woods, separated from God, hiding from His presence. And I think as you look at those that might be around you that are lost and without Christ, it should be, you should understand that it is a natural reaction for them to hide from God. They were born in the bushes. They were born separated from Him. They have a fear of God. That's why it's, uh, they flee from uh, confrontation with the Father. That is their nature. They were born in the bushes. Here's the second point. The lost come in all shapes and sizes. You can find the lost everywhere. Turn to Romans, if you would. Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 9. And it says, What then? Are we better than them? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have turned aside... Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Lost people come in all sizes and shapes. Let me tell you about a young man named Ace. Uh, Ace, uh, as you know, I live on a Nez Perce Indian reservation, and Ace has an uh, Anglo father and a uh, Native American mother. And uh, that kind of makes him a half-breed, I guess, and not always accepted in any group. But uh, he grew up being a good athlete in high school, and when my boys were going to high school, he was there and, and competed, and uh, always friendly and outgoing and, and nice uh, to me and to my family. And um, over the years, uh, he has uh, um, been still around the community, and we have been able to watch his life, really watch his life go downhill. Um, he has turned out to be a very violent young man. Um, he must be getting close to 30 by now. Uh, he was always the type that wanted quick wealth. And he wanted to do whatever it could do to make money quickly. Now, on the, on the reservation, one way of quick wealth is to have a fireworks stand. Now, we call them the illegal and insane fireworks, but you can, you can sell any kind of fireworks made on earth on the reservation. 
And uh, being a tribal member, he can get a permit to sell fireworks. And some of the families make from uh, twelve dollars to $50,000 in a three-week period selling fireworks. So that's kind of a rapid way. And so for a lot of years, he would uh, have a fireworks stand. He's the only guy I know personally who's ever won any mo money from a lottery. Um, now, uh, he won a big prize in the Idaho lottery, $15,000. That's a big prize in the Idaho, Idaho lottery. And uh, he went out and bought a new pickup truck. Three weeks later, it was totaled. It was drunk, and he ran into something and, and totaled this. Ace is always looking for a quick way to make money. I worry about him now because I think the quickest way to make money somehow is always through drug dealing. And uh, I guess it wouldn't shock me if I find out that's what he's been up to. He's a violent person. He's a person now involved in uh, obvious outward sinful practices. He's lost. But lost people come in all shapes and sizes. I think about a young high school girl. She's going to be a senior this year. Uh, she's been winning contests in the state, both contests for drama and, uh, and uh, contests for academic excellence. And she's a pleasant person to talk to when I uh, go to the schools or get a chance to speak to a school group. She comes up and visits with me about her future and how she wants to write sometime. Um, she is a person that has everything going. She comes from a stable family. She's, uh, she's headed towards the university. Uh, she has the mental and social capacities to do just about anything she wants to do. But she's lost. She doesn't know the Lord at all. I think about another young man. His name's Dave. And uh, Dave, Dave is a prince of a guy. I mean, that's all there is to it. Um, Good athlete in high school and college and a good student and a student leader. Right now he's working with uh, running a girls and boys club kind of program, a recreation program. A year, he's a year-round staff leader there and uh, does a great job. Loves kids, loves working with kids. Uh, he's uh, one of those guys that, uh, that um, from the first time we met, has always called me Mr. Bly, even though everyone in town calls me Steve. He'll call me Mr. Bly, and even though he's 30 years old now, I'm still Mr. Bly. And he says that with the kind of respect that you feel like it's an honor when he says it. Um, just a prince of a guy. He's the kind of guy you would want your daughter to marry, except he doesn't know the Lord, and he's lost. See, lost people come in all shapes and sizes. I think about uh, Mrs. Major's. She comes to the church, and she's come to the church, well, she was born in that town, and uh, so I guess 50 years probably she's come to the church, and uh, she sits towards the back. She's there most every Sunday. She gives uh, her offering. She makes uh, 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 Afghans for the uh, annual bazaar for the Ladies Association. She supports all the programs that we have in the church. Uh, pleasant person. Uh, I love having her there. But she's lost. She doesn't yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Lost people come in all shapes and sizes. Here's a third thing. The sun will continue to shine on lost 
people. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, we have that uh, familiar um, account uh, on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching about the, the righteous and the unrighteous. And he says, In order that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun will continue to shine on lost people. God will bless them. He blesses them with the sun. That's a blessing. He blesses them with the rain. That's a blessing. He blesses them with those same beautiful landscape that you and I get to look at and see. He blesses them with, with uh, often with uh, strong, healthy children. He blesses them with a, a, a job that they enjoy doing. He blesses them with material possessions. The sun shines on the lost as well as the saved. And it will continue to shine because that comes from God's heart. Here's a fourth thing to remember about the lost. They have the potential to accomplish great things for God. Lost people have the potential to accomplish great things for God. I believe that's because, according to Genesis 1.27, it says God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Lost people were created in the image of the Maker. And therefore, they have loaded within them tremendous potential to accomplish great things for God. As I got to reviewing that, I got to thinking about it, and I realized every great spiritual advancement that ever took place on this earth was headed up by someone who was previously lost. Didn't it? That's the only kind of people there are. Every great spiritual advancement was led by someone who was previously lost and now saved. That means as we look out on those we call lost, there is tremendous potential for what God might want to do. You know, and uh, yeah, the, the, the Scripture reference. Um, Genesis 1.27. Let's look at another Scripture. This time, 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul said, I was the most lost of all. But you see, there is great potential in those that are lost, and God sees that potential. Here's a fifth thing to remember about the lost. Their future is not rosy. I think when we talk about the lost, we have to remember what the book of Revelation says. And it begins there in chapter 20, verse 11, where John writes, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the death 
the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. When we think about the lost in general, we might think about this passage about their future. When we think about the lost specifically, we sometimes are afraid to think about this. I mean, <laughs> my heart breaks as yours does for those that we loved that are lost. Because this is the future. And again, theoretically, that's fine. We know that some go to heaven and some go someplace else. But when we start talking about people with names, people we love, that's hard to talk about. But God remembers it. He remembers that the future of the lost is not good. And you and I have to remember that too. Here's the sixth thing about the lost. It is not Jesus' intention that they remain lost. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3. And uh, they're looking at uh, verse 9. Where the Scriptures say, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is not Jesus' intention that anyone remain lost. In that passage that I read this morning from uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 4 said, And what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture and go after the one? which is lost. Jesus has no intention of them staying lost. That is, it is His desire that they come out of the bushes and out of the forest and out from behind the trees and find a relationship with Him. Now let's put that back down in practical terms. That means my acquaintances like Ace and, and Dave and the young girl in high school and Mrs. Majors at the back of the church. It is not His intention that any one of them be lost. As you and I go through our life and we look around those without Christ, He, he has no intention of your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter or uh, no intention of your neighbors remaining lost. He has no intention of those on the other side of town, those uh, in the prisons, uh, those on the streets that should be in the prisons. He has no intention of them remaining lost. It is His desire that they walk away from that lostness and come to repentance. Here's a seventh thing. And this is uh, what I touched on earlier this week, but let me put it back in the proper place here as we look at it. And that is, Satan is actively trying to steal and kill and destroy the lost. That is what he is up to. That verse I used earlier in the week is John 10.10, which you and I have memorized at least the second part of the verse. But the first part of that verse tells us that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Satan is actively trying to steal away their, their love to steal away their faith, to kill uh, their relationships, to destroy their lives. 
That's Satan's job. I think if I were to report back uh, uh, to other people what I uh, got out of uh, Cannon Beach and Crystal Week, as far as what the Lord taught me, one of the things at the top of my personal list is this idea from John 10.10. 10. I didn't come here with all of this all polished up, but it hit me hard this week that what Satan is busy doing is stealing and killing and destroying. And uh, that's what he does. You know, somehow we have fallen into accepting a media uh, presentation of what hell is like and this, uh, this uh, the society's view of who the devil is. And somehow society's view is that hell is, a, is where bad people go, but at least they get along with each other down there. And uh, we have this idea in society that uh, Satan is, yes, he is evil, um, but at least all those evil people stick together. And he likes those evil people. I want to tell you, Satan has no love, whatever. All he wants to do is to kill and steal and destroy. And if he can use you to destroy others, well, then he'll do that until you're useless, and then he'll destroy you because there is no love there at all. And Satan is busy trying to kill and steal and destroy the lost. The lost that are outwardly evil and repulsive, the lost that are wonderful people. He is involved in each of their lives trying to steal and kill and destroy them in whatever way he can. Here's a uh, eighth point about the lost. Jesus loves the lost deeply, and it's the only kind of people that he can save. In uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The incredible drama on the cross took place for the lost. We just get to see the world a little different because we know Christ. You see, uh, at one time we lived out there in the bushes behind the trees, and we were lost. And uh, we saw God as some, something, someone to be feared. And so um, we tried all sorts of ways to get away from that fear of God. And one way, of course, is just believe He doesn't exist. But uh, we tried all sorts of ways to hide from Him. But we saw the world from that perspective. Now we have accepted Christ and we step out of that world, but we look back and we see those that are lost. And we realize those are the ones that uh, Jesus came and died for. Uh, he, he knows exactly what they're like. He can look at Ace and uh, see a young life uh, messed up. I, a young man who is, I, I think, maybe only days or months away from being totally destroyed by Satan. But he looks at that and he says, that's the kind of person I came to save. He looks at a self-righteous person who thinks they are doing everything right and they're as good as anybody else on this earth. Uh, and, and they are. They're nice people. He looks at them and says, that's the kind of person I came to save. The lost, they're lost. So when we look out and we see those who are in the bushes, lost in the woods, separated from God, we need to see there's a person Jesus died for, and there's another, and there's another. Here's a ninth thing. 
about the lost. And I mentioned this earlier too, and this is something that's been pressing heavy on me this week. We cannot give them up to Satan without a fight. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 2, this is a scene with Jesus and Peter, whom he calls Simon, of course, in this passage, but it's Simon Peter. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Jesus is looking at Peter and saying, Satan has accused you of some horrible sin, and he says that you are rightly his. You know, the role of Satan is to accuse, and he does a good job of it. And he had made his case about Peter, that Peter and the sins of Peter and the sins that Peter will con commit even in the future as far as denying Christ are such that Satan demanded full control of Peter's life, that uh, that life was his. But notice what verse 32 is. But, Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you once, and, and when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is not going to give up Peter without a fight. We cannot give up the lost without a fight. Um, again, that has been coming uh, closer to home in the last few weeks. As I have looked at people who are obviously lost in our community, and uh, a few of them, and, and in communities around us, a few of them are such that, uh, I don't know about you, but there are some people in our community that I just sort of wish they would move to Seattle. <laughs> or someplace. Uh, because it doesn't seem like we're doing any good, and it seems like they are de doing harm in our community. But that would be to give them up without a battle. And I'm realizing we can't do that. There has to be someone, some saint, somewhere praying and sharing and working on that person's behalf until the day they are either saved or they're destroyed. I, I'm not naive. I know that uh, we're going to win some battles and we're going to lose some battles. I can read the Scriptures and I know that there are going to be some people in hell. And that means we haven't reached everybody. And there are going to be some lost around us. And we're not going to win all the battles, but we can fight all the fights. We can make sure no one goes down without somebody fighting tooth and nail to the end for them. If it is, um, if it is a prayer fight, then it will be a prayer fight. And if there are spiritual battles uh, to fight, uh, physical spiritual battles, we'll fight those too. But we cannot give up and give them over to Satan without a battle. And uh, that's one of the joys. You know, Jim, that's one of the joys I sense of the new Christian ministries, fighting some battles of people who could easily be destroyed. But uh, you're going to fight for them, and we got to do that. Here's the tenth thing about the lost to remember. The lost are the source of heaven's greatest joy. Remember what I read in uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 7. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
And then uh, down to verse 10, In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Um, I think God rejoices in all that repent. Um, and I, I hate to say that maybe some repentance causes more joy than other. I don't think there's any probably a, um, precedent for saying that. But in a battle, when you're almost going to lose, and it looks like the enemy is going to crush you, and somehow, somehow, you have the strength to keep fighting, and somehow you turn that battle around right when it looks like all was hopeless, you turned it around. What a great victory. What a tremendous victory. Um, all victories are tremendous, but what a tremendous victory to have almost lost and then to turn it around and win. I want you to look around because uh, you have some people, some lost in your area, in your context, in your neighborhood, in your church, some people that are on the verge of being destroyed. I mean, they're almost gone. Oh, wow, what joy. See, what joy there'll be when we turn that around through, through God's help, through the Spirit's work in our life, through uh, God's salvation reaching out to them to turn them around and save them from destruction. Some of the very cases that we look out and say are the hardest and the worst of all cases are going to bring tremendous joy and delight when we win that victory and we see them come to Christ. What does the Father think about the lost? We took a little picture, a little window into that this morning, reminding ourselves that uh, that pool of people called the lost is where we all came from. It's the only kind of people He has to work with. And uh, some of us have uh, experienced that great joy and delight of knowing Christ. Now it's time to uh, reach our hand back over to the other side and help a few more across. I pray for you and for me that our compassion leads to action with the lost around us. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, Part of the joy and delight of uh, our time together is uh, the, the fellowship that we have with all these new friends and uh, the love they have for you that's so obvious as we sing praises to you and we get to visit around the table. And love, and Lord, we have a lot of people that we love that, uh, that we wish could experience this great joy and delight too. And uh, Lord, we don't want to go around and... Uh, shouted on the street corner perhaps that uh, they're lost. We want to use the most effective way possible. But in our hearts, Lord, remind us that there are lost people. And uh, they aren't merely just uh, nice folks that are doing a pretty good job of uh, living their life, but they're lost and separated from you. And Lord, move us not out of superiority, Lord, in fact, if there is any superiority, I pray that you'll just crush that. Lord, we'll never reach the lost if we think we're something special. But Lord, we are those people that were in the bushes that have seen light and found Christ. 
And we want to go back into the bushes and bring some more out with us. Help us to do that, to reflect your image, uh, to be like the Father. And I pray we can be that way in our attitude and our actions towards those who don't know you. Lord, send us home with a, a more sensitive, caring, loving, courageous spirit as we reach out to those who don't know you around us. Help us to fight for them and to stand against Satan's work to kill and steal and destroy. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.